0: Welcome to the National Library, for those who have never been here, to the theatre. And uh, apologies for the change in venue, but uh, there's such a wonderful audience that we had to upgrade um, Rebecca's talk, um, which is uh, starting to become something a thing around the Fellows talks of late, so we're really pleased to see you all here tonight. Um, So welcome to the National Library of Australia, I'm the curator of maps here, um, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our third fellowship presentation for 2018. Um, and to introduce you to our guest speaker, Dr Rebecca Jones. And as we begin, I'd like to uh, acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people past and present. Rebecca was awarded the 2018 National Library of Australia fellowship supported by um, Deidre and Kevin McCann and the Macquarie Group Foundation for her evocatively titled Research Project Crazy Weather. I'm sure that's what's attracted you all. Uh, it's a concept with, which immediately resonates in these changing climes and uh, when it's difficult to know uh, what to expect. And as a regular um, bicycle commuter, I'm enjoying the generally favourable and positive effects of wearing shorts um, still into late April, though I know it will end soon. Um, my personal comfort, comfort reference is a weak segue to Rebecca's strengths. Rebecca is an historian who combines uh, climate and environment with rural health and wellbeing. Most recently in her book Slow Catastrophes, Living with Drought in Australia, published by Monash University Publishing last year, and you might be able to obtain a signed copy afterwards um, in the foyer this evening. Rebecca comes to us via Monash University where she was senior research fellow in the School of Rural Health and before that from ANU where she was postdoctoral fellow in the School of History and Centre for Environmental History. Rebecca is a graduate of both Melbourne and Monash universities, the latter which, where she completed her PhD on the history of organic gardening in Australia. Prior to her doctoral research, Rebecca worked as a public historian for heritage agencies, community groups, Museum Victoria, archives, and local government. Rebecca's historical gaze is never far from the earth, so you can see. And natural farming methods, soil microbes, compost, possums, quondongs, bushfires, drought, pestilence. No, not pestilence. (laughs) The environment and its human interrelationships are at the nub of her writing and research. Rebecca's current investigation into the physical and emotional effects of climate extremes has dug into most of the library's collecting strata books, newspapers, manuscripts, pictures, maps, oral histories, and much more. With a focus on the records of the Australian Inland Mission, as it was known under the Presbyterian Church to 1977. Now, this collection is not for the faint-hearted, so I'm told. Spanning 113 and a bit meters or 535 boxes, the archive has the distinction of being one of the heftiest manuscript collections in the library. Lucky Rebecca. I particularly enjoyed assisting her unearth some hard-to-find maps material, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about what she has found in the AIM collection uh, this evening. And please welcome Uh, Rebecca.
1: Thank you very much, Martin, for that lovely introduction. And I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people and pay my respects to their elders. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Central Australia, about which I'm speaking today. I'm very grateful to the National Library for the opportunity to participate in this fellowship. It has been a real privilege and a fantastic opportunity. Thank you to to Deidre and Kevin McCann and the Macquarie Group Foundation who supported this fellowship. And also thank you to the staff of the National Library who have given such fabulous support and who are impressively helpful, professional, competent, can-do kind of people. And thank you all for coming tonight. I'll be showing a lot of images as I go through this talk. Most of them come from the um, Australian Inline Mission collection. In fact, I think all but one of them. Most of them are not dated in the collection, but I um, know that all of the ones I'm showing tonight are before 1951. And where there's dates, I've um, tried to include them in there. So let's let's begin. <coughs> So, travelling in inland Australia required preparation for all contingencies, as you can see from this slide. Lurching between dry, wet, cold, heat and so much dust. Temperatures of 49 degrees for days left people wilting and fragile and many people travelled by night to avoid the searing heat. And yet the sun-drenched inland can also be cold, enough to give people chillblains. Surging floodwaters could turn landscapes to massive seas, causing travellers to detour many miles, or in this case, halt their journey. And when floods retreated and the plains became green with newly growing grass and the sandhills came alive with red, yellow, white and purple flowers. And then with absolutely no rain falling for months, even years sometimes, the land became cripplingly dry. The road between Birdsville and Maree, pictured here, was described by one traveller as 200 miles where the only thing that one sees are the remains of animals that have perished in the drought. And with the drought came insidious blinding sandstorms, which enveloped buildings and inveigled its way into the ears, eyes, nose, mouth of people. And here we see people eating their Christmas dinner under a cloth to, to stop too much sand entering their mouths. So weather is a mantle that envelops us, but it's not simply a backdrop to our lives. It's also an agent in individual lives and in history. When we read about the past, even perhaps when we view photographs, we sometimes forget that living in the past was a bodily experience. People then, as now, experience the world through their bodies and their senses. And Arid Australia in the past was a very sensual experience. People more so than now had fewer opportunities to insulate themselves and control the weather. The environment not only affected their bodies, but of course it also affected their minds. Through the permeable, fuzzy boundary between mind and body it deeply affected their emotions and even at times their psychological well-being. This experience in the first half of the 20th century is what has preoccupied me in the last two and a half months during this fellowship. Extreme weather, when conditions step outside the normal, is when the effects on people are the greatest and the pointy end of historical experience which can have a lasting legacy. Meteorologically, Central Australia is considered to be a particularly variable climate, but for coastal people, all weather in Central Australia is extreme. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, arid Australia was, and arguably still is, a frontier of unsettlement. Unlike Aboriginal people of Central Australia, who were intricately adapted to this land and climate, British and European settlers were individually and culturally relatively new to Central Australia and were still in the process of finding their way and adapting. And therefore, it's this people who i focused on in my research, although I've also looked, where possible, for comparisons with the experience of Aboriginal people of this area. But first, let me just step aside briefly from the weather and talk a little bit about the Australian Inland Mission, or the AIM as it was called. The papers of the Australian Inland Mission here at the National Library are a very large collection, as Martin mentioned, of manuscripts, images, maps, objects and oral history. And they've provided me with a fantastic window through which to explore settler colonial experiences of extreme weather. What they were experiencing, the effects on their health and emotions and how they adapted. The AIM was established in 1912, auspiced by the Presbyterian Church of Australia. It was a brainchild of John Flynn, but it was actually based on a model which began with the appointment of a nurse at Udenadatta in 1907, following the lobbying of an earlier minister, Minister Francis Rowland. The AIM is, of course, best known for the Flying Doctors, which were established by Flynn in 1928, or the Aerial Medical Service, as it was known until 1939. Despite the publicity and glamour of the Aerial Medical Services, the heart of the AIM, literally and metaphorically, was a network of nursing homes or nursing centres, and I'll talk about the word home a bit later, throughout remote South Australia, Queensland, Northern Territory and Western Australia. By 1939, these nursing centres numbered about 14 well, exactly 14, and here's a map of their location. Nurses were appointed in pairs for a two-year term. They were responsible for a huge geographic area, attending to the health of the people of the inland through outpatient clinics, inpatient beds, home visits, as well as dispensing medicine and medical supplies. But these nursing centres were far more than health clinics. The mission of the AIM was what we might today call holistic health. Supported by roving ministers of religion and doctors, their role was to nurture the health, spiritual, and social needs of bush settlers in central Australia. Nurses came from many Christian persuasions, and the religious philosophy of the AIM was more Christian humanitarian than denominational or evangelical. This was a philosophy which caused some controversy within the church, but was fought for doggedly by Supervisor John Flynn and his successor, Fred McKay. Nurses were expected to actively participate in the life of the community. They organised social events such as carnivals, Christmas parties, women's groups, children's activities, and even conducted burial services when required. Today we tend to associate missions in Central Australia with evangelising and Western education of Indigenous people. However, the mission of the Australian Inland Mission was primarily, primarily, and in later years again controversially, about supporting and nurturing European settlement in remote Australia. Until the mid-1930s, nurses did not routinely record if patients were Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal although nurses' diaries and correspondence show that Aboriginal people were treated by the AIM nurses, usually free of charge. From the mid-1930s, patient records were usually divided into, and I quote here, white, Aboriginal or half-caste, and half-caste included anyone who was not British, Irish or Northern European, so that included Afghans, Malays, Italians and Syrians. Probably about one-fifth of patients I've estimated in that period were Aboriginal in the southern nursing centres, with a higher percentage, I think, further north. Aboriginal people are a presence in the records of the AIM, albeit a presence without a voice. There are photographs, mention of Aboriginal workers on pastoral stations, transport teams, as guides and in-town camps. In an oral history account by Aboriginal people of Unadatta in 1980s, and that's not part of the Australian Inland Mission collection, although it is in the library here, some recall that interaction between AIM staff was limited to mutually wary, occasional treatment, and shy excursions, fishing, swimming or riding in the car. As my interest is principally in arid climates, I have focused on four particular nursing centres of the Australian Inland Mission. Data in far north, South Australia. Nursing commenced here out of a room at the hotel in 1907 with a nursing centre opening in 1912. And that's the centre there. Beltana near the Flinders Ranges, which opened in 1919. Birdsville in far western Queensland. This opened in 1923, and ironically for a Presbyterian organisation, the first nursing home pictured here was in a dilapidated former pub. And my f- the final nursing station that I focus on is Inaminka, on the South Australian Queensland border at Cooper Creek, which was purpose-built for the AIM in 1924. And there's a map which shows you... Unadatta, Birdsville, Inaminka, and Beltana. So, let's go back to the weather. And health and how it affected people in the inland at the time. Patient records of these four nursing homes show that nurses treated a very large range of conditions There were many injuries and in this pre-antibiotic era many of these became seriously infected. There was also infectious diseases, measles such like, tuberculosis, teeth extractions and the nurses did a lot of them, maternity issues, colds, influenza and arthritis among many other things that they treated. But I've also identified a range of conditions which the nurses treated associated with or as exacerbated by extreme weather iron gastric problems, heat exhaustion, sunburn, chillblains, drowning, not sure you can treat that, vector-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue fever and psychological problems. In the longer term I'm quantifying and mapping these conditions but tonight I'll speak about three of perhaps what I think are the most interesting of these conditions. As I'm discussing them, I'm using the diagnoses and terms used at the time not retrospective assessments on my part. Although I have, of course, found the understandings of past illness by contemporary health professionals as well as medical historians to be useful. So water and food borne gastric problems were amongst the commonest causes of treatment at the nursing homes. Flooding brought outbreaks of gastric diseases as pollutants swept into drinking water and bathing sources such as water holes and cesspits overflowed. Drought also increased the number of people treated at nursing homes. Clean, clean sources of water such as tanks dried. Bores in many parts of the inland were not palatable for human drinking due to their high mineral content and people were forced to rely on increasingly stagnant and polluted multi-purpose water holes, as you can see here. Sister Grace Francis of Birdsville wrote in her diary in 1924, the water from the town hole is thick and not good to drink. There's a dead horse, which is not the most pleasant thing at the end of the water hole. Five of us women folk burnt it, although the men tell us the flood waters will not reach it. Still, the carcass is in the main channel of the town hole and prefer to be certain about it. Police attempted to enforce public health ordering residents to boil drinking water during drought, but they were not always very successful in that. And without refrigerators and freezers, in extreme heat, wet and dry, extreme heat, wet and dry, residents of inland Australia often had problems getting fresh food. Birdsville nurses wrote, we find it hard to get up a meal. Mr Lee sent a bag of meat, but unfortunately the sun smiled on it with vengeance, and we had to consign it to the rubbish heap. During drought, goat's milk also became hard to procure as the animals were starving and stopped producing milk. Just hate the jolly old tin cow, a nurse remarked. When green vegetables were scarce, Grace France's nursing companion, Sister Boyd, ate a palatable looking green succulent which she found by the river, but which made her sick for three days. One of the severe gastric complaints suffered by AIM patients was Baku fever also attractively known as Baku spew. Baku fever was fairly common amongst non-Aboriginal Australians in the arid Inlet, but was rare amongst Aboriginal people. Symptoms included fever, headaches, vomiting, diarrhoea, and in the worst cases, seizure and respiratory failure. During the 19th and most of the 20th century, the cause of Baku fever was not well known. Baku is an Aboriginal word, with various different translations. And it was the name given by Europeans to the river which rises in the western flanks of the Great Dividing Range and flows into the Cooper Creek. There's a map of Queensland. And and I've marked what we now know as the Baku River, which is that. But along here, which is what we now call Cooper Creek, was on various maps also called the Baku. So you can see it, it clearly divides what's known as remote from less remote Queensland. In settler colonial Australian language, beyond the Baku represented the far outback. There are many examples of this association in Australian literature and music. Henry Kendall composed a poem in 1962 about the far outback called the Barku. Henry Lawson, of course, wrote, Twix the ocean and the Baku, delineating extremes. Banjo Patterson wrote, On the outer Baku where the per- church is a few. And a bush song from the 1930s called On the Far Baku begins, In the far Baku where they eat Nardu, 1,000 miles away. So Baku was synonymous with remote, on the edge, beyond civilisation. And yet there was more sickness on the Baku. Baku also had a rot. Baku rot, or Baku sores, were persistent superficial ulcerous skin lesions, and I won't show you a photograph of them, mainly in exposed areas of the hands and arms, and they were quite common in hot, sandy regions of Australia. They were thought at the time to be connected to what was called felt disease in South Africa. In the 19th century, Baku rot was thought to be the same as scurvy, but by the 1930s, doctors were uh, associating it with bacteria which entered the skin, mainly through cuts or abrasions. Again, Aboriginal people seemed to experience the disease less than Europeans and Afghans. Various patent medicines were sold to treat Baku rot, but doctors suggested that the main method of prevention was scrupulous attention to cleanliness of person and house, combined with fresh food and fresh air. All were rather difficult to procure in parts of Australia where water was scarce, travel was slow and dust storms were frequent. Being on the Ba'ku then, remote and beyond civilisation, was also then associated with sickness and being beyond the outer limits was potentially an unhealthy experience. The third health issue which I'd like to discuss is the emotional and psychological effects of extreme weather. These are variously described in AIM nursing records as nervous stability, nervous exhaustion, nervous breakdown, nerves, depression, emotional collapse, neurosis and neurothenia. I've identified at least 81 of these cases in patient records in the 1930s and 40s from my four nursing homes. Interestingly, probably, probably the greatest insight into the psychological effects of extreme weather can be found amongst the staff of the AIM themselves. Letters written by nurses reveal the increasing desperation which some nurses felt if their term was to extend beyond a second or third summer. (coughs) Let me read to you from a letter written by Nurse Kitty Campbell to Miss Baird, who was the nurse's main um, contact person at the AIM, in February 1932, towards the end of her two-year term in Birdsville. And I quote, "'We are not feeling very fit,' We have had a terrible time with the heat and bad food. Sister Fanshawe had a very bad gastric attack. I would have asked to be relieved, only I know I could could not face the journey out. I'm just longing to get some cool green spot and rest. The temperature in the day here is now 107, which is about 42 Celsius. That is bearable to what we have had. It takes a very strong person to stand up to two summers out here, I think. Perhaps the most poignant example of the psychological effects of extreme weather is the story of Reverend Bruce Plowman. In 1913, at the age of 27, Plowman succeeded John Flynn as patrol padre, first at Beltana and then at Udnadatta. His patrol extended over 1,200 kilometres north to Tennant Creek, some 200 kilometres south, and two to three hundred kilometres east and west. So um, Bruce Plowman's patrol is roughly, it, this map's from 1952, but it, it corresponded roughly with what's ne- in this map called Central Patrol. So you can see what an enormous area it, he was responsible for, based at data And over here is um, a little hand-drawn map he drew of his his travels between Oodadada down there, just called Ood, and Alice Springs at the top. Bruce Plowman and his camel team was almost continually on the move, 2,300 miles of travelling between April and September he noted one year. He travelled through some of the hottest, driest, sandiest and most sparsely populated country in Australia, staying with settlers or sleeping in the open. He noted that sometimes in winter his bedding, the bedding around him froze. And that's some of the sleeping quarters that um, the, the Padres experienced. And that's a lantern slide, so that's why it's, um, it's become correct. As he travelled, Bruce Playermont attended the spiritual, social and even health needs of settlers. Bearing in mind he's a reverend, not a doctor. He held church services, marriage ceremonies, visited lonely people, mended furniture, pulled teeth, nursed sick and listened and advised those in difficulty. In order to demonstrate he was not, not above earthly concerns, he worked alongside settlers mustering or mending fences. In effect, he did whatever was needed. In the letters he sent to his fiancée, he explains the conditions he worked under. And I co- a quote from Bruce, "'It has been very warm and dry, "'and as the houses are of iron, "'I feel it a little uncomfortable, and early rising is necessary to avoid the discomfort of trying to rest in overheated rooms. If we sleep outside, of course, can't stay in bed once the sun is up. Plowman's life oscillated between extreme isolation, not seeing a soul for six days, he writes, interspersed with periods of over-sociability when his attention was in continual demand as each place he went to, he was the newcomer and the visitor. Towards the end of his five-year term, he wrote, "After four years' experience, I can say that it is a positive hardship to have no place where one can get away from town folk of Unadatta for even a little quietness." Plowman <laughs> felt his responsibilities acutely, he writes to his fiancée. "The men are asking for me to come up. I must go if I can." He also felt he was often dealing with situations, particularly in the medical realm, which were well beyond his expertise. We witness his slow decline in his letters. Insomnia, excessive fatigue, anxiety and overreaction to small provocations. He writes, a kitten upset me. He got on the table during prayers. I had to put her out after the Lord's Prayer but I was pretty well upset by then. The uncharacteristic anger and alienation he had begun to feel towards the AIM at the end of his five-year term is clear in a letter he wrote to the AIM. In this letter, he demands that, and again I quote, the board's method of addressing its agents through its letters be altered to allow for something approaching the personal element taking the place of the hard and colourless, strictly business style usually adopted. Your agent may be a dear sir, but he is also very often a tired and dispirited human being and it doesn't help him any to be addressed in the conventional style adopted for patent pills. Bruce Ploughman was diagnosed with nerves and weakened heart by doctors at the end of his stint for the AIM. Ploughman himself wrote in the back of his 1917 diary, and you can see that on the right of your screen, the screen. Some, and he wrote this some 40 years later, when um, probably when he donated his diary to the Australian Inland Mission. He wrote, Unable to finish diary owing to getting a nervous breakdown accom- accompanied by insomnia. Reverend Partridge came north to Bloods Creek and we travelled back to Unadatta together. You probably can't read that there, but it's down there in the scrawly handwriting. I'm not claiming that the weather alone was the cause of Bruce Plowman's nor Kitty Campbell's distress. Isolation, lack of support, intense relationships with those around them, overwork, lack of sleep and acute sense of responsibility often cannot be untangled from the effects of heat, cold, dust, drought and flood. So what can we make of these examples of ill health and weather? The far outback, its climate, landscape and isolation was seen by Australian ill mission staff and settlers to be deeply ambiguous both invigorating and debilitating. These contradictory ideas often sat uncomfortably together, but drove the work of the Australian Inland Mission, not just the narratives they told in their public profile, but also in the way they treated patients. Staff of the Australian Inland Mission did see much beauty in the climate and the landscape. They describe the vitality of the land, the wildflowers, the glow of sunsets, the warm red and sand of sand dunes, and the fresh air, well, unpolluted air. Winter climates were considered ideal, with clear sunny skies, dry air, and cool nights. A sanatorium for people with tuberculosis was set up in Parachilna Gorge in the Flinders Ranges near Beltana in World War I, just after World War I. Historian Bridget Haynes, in her book The Ice and the Inland, analysed John Flynn's writing in the Inlander magazine, an organ of the AIM, and notes his admiration for open space, sparse population and the rural endeavours, which he felt made for a more wholesome and vigorous settler. And yet AIM staff also were horrified by the landscape. Sister Sister Edna McClelland wrote of Birdsville, I can't explain what this country is like. It is the driest, dullest, sandiest looking place I have ever seen. This is one of my favourite photographs in the um, Australian Inland Mission collection. The caption is just scenery. (laughs) Stories abounded of people getting lost physically, morally and spiritually in such a landscape. In AIM correspondence there are many stories of someone who knew someone who had died in the inland. Such as this one from Birdsville. The mailman perished in the pitiless heat and sand. Others, stockmen and drovers, had perished and some years passed before their skeletons were found. Some were never found, having been buried by the drifting sand." In their patient notes, erosion of vigour was viewed by nurses as a normal response to the climate and environment of Central Australia. Debility, which is kind of a general failure of mental and physical health, was a common diagnosis at the nursing homes. In the five years between 1936 and 1941, I've counted 45 adults, both men and women, all non-Aboriginal, who were diagnosed with debility in my four nursing homes. That's 17% of populations treated during that time. Sorry, 17% of people treated during that time. This ambivalence about the landscape and climate of Central Australia as both debilitating and healthy parallels extensive international literature in the late 19th and early 20th century about the fitness of white men and women in tropical Australia. Opposing camps argued on the one hand that white people were inherently unsuitable to hot and humid climates which depleted their physical and mental vitality. And on the other hand, people also argued that white people adapted to tropical climates and were in fact invigorated by it. There's not much writing in international literature about the effect of arid climates on on white people, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in looking at it. But there were a few North American writers who linked flat inland landscapes without natural aspect, as they called it, such as the Great Plains of North America, to depression of mood, and others felt that frequency of storms on the Great Plains led to increased insanity and nervous instability. In this ambiguity around the healthfulness or debilitatingness of of climates of arid Australia, We can also see a mixture of old and new ideas about health. AIM doctors and nurses in the 1910s to 1940s firmly embraced biomedical ideas of health, which had dominated medicine from the early 20th century. They were competent health practitioners of the day who wore the badge of science, modernity and hygiene proudly. They were aware of bacteria, contagion, sterilisation and promoted public and personal hygiene. Washing and cleaning featured prominently in their correspondence. But weaving through these modern ideas were older concepts of health. The idea that environments and climates themselves were inherently healthy or unhealthy and that the environment permeated bodies and minds literally. Baku fever and Baku rot are examples of this. Incidentally, in 1992, medical historian Jay Heyman in the Medical Journal of Australia suggested that Baku fever was perhaps poisoning by blue-green algae. Blue-green algae develops in warm, stagnant water, often high in nutrients. It's now associated with fertiliser runoff, but in central Australia, at that time, it was probably water holes contaminated with cattle, um, camel and horse manure. And it's likely that Aboriginal Australians, the inland, knew not to drink from these places with blue-green algae. The IM provided some reconciliation between what they saw as healthfulness and the dangerousness of the inland and its weather. Nursing centres provided protection from the excesses of the outback. They provided stability in the chaos and unpredictability of the remote inland. They provided modern scientific expertise in medicine. They provided technology. They provided hygiene. And they provided order. The fact that nursing centres were staffed by women was particularly important. These AIM nursing centres were not clinics, they were nursing homes. According to ideas of gender roles prevalent at the time, the women who staffed the homes brought social and moral strength to the inland. Part of their role was purveyors of British culture. The IAM sent the homes literature, both fiction and non fiction, and tasteful magazines, which they distributed to interested people in the community. Nurses also brought music, hymns of course, but also non religious music. And many nurses also cultivated gardens with varying, su- with varying success. They discussed them at length in their correspondence with the Australian Inland Mission Central Administration. <coughs> Ina Curry enthusiastically described her garden at Inaminka in the early 1920s. It sounds incredible that a garden could be wrested from this gibber country, I know, but we are doing it. Oleander, bamboo, a water bush hedge, lemon and orange trees, candy tuft, and irinum, petunias, lettuces, and tomatoes. All of, Ina's curry, all of Ina Curry's plants were introduced again reinforcing introduced white culture in the remote inland these gardens not only had practical, practical value in providing fresh food and vegeta- fresh fruit and vegetables but they also conveyed cheerfulness life and some sense of success despite the climate this success was though in fact usually limited as each summer the gardens were baked and submerged by blowing sand So the AIM helped patients to either overcome or retreat. Nursing centres provided a haven. Both women and men were admitted to the hospital for a break and to revitalise. In 1936, one woman was admitted to the Birdsville Hospital for a 14-day rest. Just on her patient records, it says needed a rest. For others, particularly female, female patients, Treatment was evacuation to coastal areas. And again, that was for a complete change, it would say on the records. There was an idea at the time that white women could only stand the climate of the interior if they had a complete change every year. Most bush settlers, of course, didn't have the opportunity to do that. The nurses of the Australian Inland Mission, as people, as well as nurses, were expected to embody all that was good and healthy about living in the inland. They were capable, adaptable, flexible and stoic. For women at the time, to be an Australian Inland Mission nurse must have been an extraordinary opportunity for independence, autonomy, and to practise and be respected for their professional experience and to be leaders in their community. Some of their description of life in the inland reads like a girl's own annual. The physicality of their life, swimming, shooting, fishing, and the adventures they wrote about. They were incredulous about the weather, but also adaptable and humorous. And I'll quote to you from Nurse Belle Suggott of Birdsville. She writes, thick fog and rain, 141 points in half an hour. We had rain everywhere outside and nearly everywhere inside. The parlour room and kitchen were flooded. We had a patient and family with an umbrella over them and an outpatient whose finger was in in a bandage with an umbrella over her. Sister and I were running around in all directions with things and then we saw the humour in, in it all. So put on hats and coats and had a cup of tea with an umbrella over the tea tray. <laughs> but when cracks appear in this cheery facade, it was met with disapproval by the Australian Inland Mission staff or the Australian Inland Mission Central Administration. I'll read to you a particularly stark example of this from Inaminka in 1940 where Marjorie Walker and Janet Stevenson were nursing. On the 10th of February, Marjorie Walker wrote to the AIM of the very hot weather. Then comes a letter dated 11th of March from Janet Stevenson, her nursing partner, that is uncharacteristically blunt, I quote. Unfortunately, Sister Walker got sick. Nothing organically wrong, a very definite nervous breakdown. I will carry on until relief comes. Miss Brodie, who is central administration, seems to think Sister Walker will come back. She won't be coming back. She's resting in Adelaide. The response from the AIM is perhaps even more interesting. Very sorry to hear Sister Walker had a breakdown. Do hope she will be all right again and able to return to Inaminka. Every effort is being made to try and obtain nurses to take on the work. It's a pity Sister Walker's health broke down. And in a letter written to Marjorie Walker herself, "'We are very sorry that there has been such a long delay "'in our writing to you. "'It was with very great regret "'that we heard of your breakdown in health. "'This has complicated matters, "'but every endeavour is being made to send relief for Sister Stevenson. "'It is hoped that as a result of the rest, "'you are now feeling much better "'and you will at least have the satisfaction "'that you did go to Inaminka and served the AIM there for a period.'" We take this opportunity of thanking you for all you have done and regret that it is not possible for you to complete your period of service. And in another letter, a month later, we regret that you are still suffering the effects of your breakdown. It was strange that your health should be so affected so suddenly when you really appeared to be thoroughly enjoying your service at Inaminka. And we have no response from Sister Walker to that letter. So not only was the administration quite unsympathetic, there was a significant note of blame in their letters. Sister Walker had portrayed the role of the AIM nurse, who was competent and in control, stoic and adaptable. Nurses had a responsibility to their patients, the AIM, and in fact the, the inland and the nation, to embody that vitality. When women succumbed, it was a source of irritation for the AIM and inconvenience, but there was existing cultural concern about the stamina of women in hot and arid areas. But when men of the AAM succumbed to the remote inland, they received inv- even more criticism. And you'll recall Bruce Ploughman, struggling with heat, cold, isolation, and insomnia. After his return to Melbourne, John Flynn wrote, he is overstray about Bruce Ploughman, he has overstrayed himself, overstrained himself by overwork and over-travel. And this, facts make, this fact makes his peculiar views more or less irrelevant for the time. Although Flynn did acknowledge that Bruce Plowman had worked very hard and was popular amongst the people in his patrol. (coughs) So I've taken you through a bit of a journey through the weather of remote Australia, the Australian mission, illness in early 20th century Central Australia, such as the bar and emotional distress and some of the ways nurses of the AAM understood and coped with the remote arid inlet in the context of their times. So what can these stories from the Australian Inland Mission Padres and nurses and their patients tell us? Firstly, I think these stories remind us that the, of the physicality of the past. The past was experienced through people's bodies and emotions. Secondly, I think... The people of the inland, both Aboriginal and settler, were profoundly affected by the extremes of dry, wet, cold, heat and dust, but they also found ways to adapt. Understanding the physical and emotional effects of climate helps us to better appreciate the way weather has shaped our lives. And finally today, climate variability and extreme weather is one of the key challenges of our times. We are living the legacy of the past now, and maybe therefore we can learn from relationships between people and the environment in the past today. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Rebecca, for that fascinating uh, insight into you provided, into how early settlers uh, in those areas cope with extreme weather, and and also the response of the um, of the central administration. Um, I found that really quite fascinating. Um, Really has broadened understanding of impact of climate on human physical and emotional health. Um, And we've got time, 10 or 15 minutes, to explore this topic further. Questions, please? There's a microphone up there that Susan has. So if you could just uh, raise your hand, she'll bring it to you. And Beth over there. Thanks for a a fascinating presentation. The AIM, I presume, no longer exists. What brought about its demise? Or was it just replaced by another very similar organisation?
1: It ceased to be called the Australian LA Mission in 19, or just after 1977, when the Presbyterian, you know, as you probably know, the Presbyterian Church split with some remaining in what was called the Continuing Church, and some joining the Methodists and um, others to become what we now know as the Uniting Church. And in the um, massive court case that occurred at that time, the Australian LA Mission was allocated to the Uniting Church. Um, and, it, and the Continuing Church continued an organisation that did some things, the Australian LA Mission became the Uniting Church in Australia Frontier Services um, and it continued in, in some form. Um, the, in the 19, the the height of the Australian Inland Mission work in terms of on the ground activities, the nursing homes was probably the period that I'm looking at. Um, nursing homes, some of the nursing homes were closed during the 50s and 60s um, but as you know the Royal Flying Doctors um, The Royal Flying Doctors became a separate organisation um, in 1939 Um, and, you know, as you know, that's still firing on all cylinders.
0: Do you think there's a way that people could have dealt with the climate that would have been more healthy? Uh, in the past or now for current climate problems? Or is this part of Australia simply incompatible with the way of life that people are trying to live there, were and are?
1: Hmm. Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) Um, I don't really want to judge them on whether they could have been could have dealt with it differently. I'm interested to know how they dealt with it more than whether they could have done it differently. Um, They certainly, I mean, a lot of settlers lived there for many years, all their lives. Um, So I'm not, I don't want to paint a picture that implies that they were not successful because clearly a lot of them were. Um, And the staff, you know the staff worked, worked very hard and um, did a you know did a lot of good work. It, it just wasn't as easy, and I wanted to kind of tease out some of the ideas that that went around the health and ill, Ill health. Um, so, so that's my idea about the past. Um, about the present, um, I think we can learn from the past because I think people in the past have done a lot already um, and um, they have learnt things which we are now continually relearning. Um, So I'd like to say we can learn from the past generally. My specific recommendations from this study I think is a little bit early to, to, to say at the moment but thanks for asking. Hi,
2: Rebecca. It's wonderful to hear what you're making of this uh, collection. And um, I'm just wondering, you said at the beginning, and this follows on, from the last question that you were trying to find uh, parallel evidence with Aboriginal people and how they were experiencing the same environments. But of course, it's, it's not crazy to them. It's normal to them. It's not alien. It's home. So I'm just wondering to what degree you've considered the concept of cognitive dissonance in, in what you're reading in these uh, white settler uh, accounts? How, how are they reconciling their distress with the fact that they're aliens in this land that had been occupied by people for millennia?
1: Um, thanks, Carolyn. Um, they certainly came from a the Australian Inland Mission was the fundamental philosophy of the Australian Inland Mission was that they needed to support white British Northern European settlement in the inland. Um, so the, the, the whole premise of the Australian Inland Mission was based on a what we would now term a fundamentally racist idea that their culture needed to be supreme and that conquering the inland by settlement was, by settlement of European settlers, was um, part of building the nation, um, part of colonisation, continuing colonisation of Australia and um, securing and later securing the the inland for Australian, for white Australians. Um, So they were certainly very Proud of that. This was this was part of the philosophy, and they were um, they were. I think um, John, uh, the the nurses themselves, I don't get much of a sense. Um, the central administration and John Flynn himself, I do get a sense that he was both. Um, this was his mission, which he believed really strongly in. Um, he was humanitarian towards, he had a humanitarian attitude towards Indigenous people but he did believe that, he believed that they should be treated well but he believed that they were an outmoded way of being in the inland. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Not exactly. <laughs> be yeah I mean it certainly it, it, they certainly felt very alien in that, con- in that culture and in that country um, but they were they were also very driven by their desire to overcome that um, so that was that was kind of their purpose really it didn't always succeed as I've you know given you those examples but it was definitely part of, their, part of what kept them going is, what the, is that they felt like they were doing this, not only for their patients, but also for the Australian Inland Mission and for the nation, yeah.
0: Hi, uh, just a couple of quick ones. First, I think you said you'd had this fellowship, or you did this fellowship for two and a half months, that made me think, did you actually write your book in two and a half months? Um, <laughs> No, that's just an aside. The second question, I read a book a number of years ago, I think by someone, William Hatfield, Australia Through the Windscreen, who drove around Central Australia amongst other places. And what stuck in my mind, back in 1939, he sort of circled Australia and down through Central Australia. He went into quite a diatribe at one point that something that stuck in my mind, which was the land use uh, overstocking through that area. So I wonder, does your book address it or land use as part of this uh, issue on the effects of weather as well and climate?
1: Um, no, I didn't write my book in two and a half months, I wish. <laughs> uh, the, the book that, um, the, the, you know, is in the shop, The Slow Catastrophes, that was actually a product of um, our postdoctoral fellowship. It discusses drought, the, um, the impact and adaptation to drought. And this project, actually, was a kind of spin-off from that in which I became interested in other forms of f- climate um, and more deeply interested in the physical and emotional <coughs> impact um, of extreme weather. So um, so that's, that's the connection. Um, was there a second part to that question? Use, really. Oh, that's right. Um, I'm not so, I haven't so much looked at land use through the inland mission papers because they don't provide me... With that material, um, but I did look at land use a lot in my book um, because I was mainly looking there at the pastoral and agricultural parts of southeastern Australia. Um, so yeah, land use um, overstocking that was a huge, huge factor. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, I just wanted to ask you. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about a a communication like a letter between a missionary and um, the person who's employing them or the centre that's employing them is there's a certain amount of things you can talk about and lots of things you can't talk about. And one of the things you can, can talk about is the weather. So I'm wondering to what extent the weather gets blamed for the isolation, the general unsatisfactoriness of the society that they're trying to preach Christianity at Um, so there's a a whole lot of dimensions of their work that have nothing to do with the weather but the weather might be taking the blame and and how do you how do you tease that sort of difference out when you're looking do you follow the temperature charts at the same time or how do you how do you actually sort of work out what's metaphor and what's actually weather
1: um I'm uh firstly I'm using a variety of correspondence some of it is between the nurses and central AAM some of it is actually personal correspondence um, such as Bruce Plowman's letters to his fiance and his mother um, so there is fortunately in the in the collection quite a range of different types of correspondence and diaries too which where they um, can talk about things so-called privately not anymore now I'm reading them but um, but yeah I, I agree that um, whether the weather well Weather and landscape were the two incredibly stark things about the inland, which just you know hit hit the um, the people, particularly in the early stages of their placement. And as i as I was starting to look at the inland Mission I papers, I started to try and work out what was what. And then in the end, I decided, well, in fact, the weather, the landscape and the remoteness, as I said it in the talk, it's really hard to tease out the difference between them and I'm not sure it's actually necessary. It's the Australian Inland Mission and the Central Australia came as a package for these people, which was remote and all the things that goes with remoteness, you know, lack of services, transport, blah, 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 um, remote, landscape and weather. And those three were kind of, were the inland for these people. Um, so I think I don't think it is just weather, um, as, as I said, but I do think weather is a really major part. And, and just to briefly note, it's it's really interesting, although these are s- these letters that they sent between nurses and Australian Airline Mission, the ones put from the nurses back to the mission, they these these this women women Miss Baird and Miss Brodie that they wrote to were their main they were kind of like their handlers, their main. Points of contact, and they were extraordinarily personal letters that they sent. It was they they talked about how much they relied on the mail, which came about once a fortnight, mostly. How um, intense mail days were for them, and I think they were the interaction between them. While it started off as as kind of a formal reporting, actually became something much. A much more intense relationship. Um, so they did talk about, they did talk about their emotions, which is great for me. Yeah. We've
0: probably got time for one more question, Robin, back there. I think Susan.
3: A, a marvelous use of the papers um, of such huge collection of material, Rebecca. Um, I'm wondering. There's so many sort of spin-off stories from this and so many different ways of looking at it. Um, I'm just wondering if you've been able to think through what else there might be. I can't think of another collection or another source that would give us such richness of perspective as this particular collection, but have you seen other things in the collections which might kind of spin off as complementary ways of looking or teasing out some of these questions or is it that this is just a kind of unique, unusual
1: collection that's just kind of complete in itself? Thanks, Robin. Um, oh, there's so, there is so many stories that, that come out of, and, and I'm only looking at I'm only looking at four nursing homes, and I'm only looking at a particular period, uh, so I couldn't even really begin to, um, to begin to suggest things that relate to the other areas, but. You know, we could you could look at um, you could look at specifically how they relate, how they talk about Indigenous people, and the the kind of I think there's a really interesting story there in the kind of um, conditions that Indigenous people are experiencing in that, peri- in that period when Indigenous people were recorded as Indigenous. Um, you could write, you could you know find something really fascinating in that. Um, you know, there's other kind of it's really interesting. You could you could track influenza and, and colds, you could you could look at the way they look at um, childbirth and then you know you could look at all the other things that are completely unrelated to health. Yeah. I, I don't even know where to begin, Robin, with how many spin-off stories there could be.
0: Come um, please join me in thanking Rebecca one more time. <laughs> We've got time uh, now to uh, to talk to Rebecca further, perhaps carry on the conversation upstairs. There's still, I hope, some food and beverages left. Um, and uh, and also it's my duty as well to mention that next Tuesday, 1st of May, um, Associate Professor Ruth Baraclough uh, will take us to the 38th parallel uh, with tales of Korea's glamorous early communist women in her tantalisingly lit- Title lecture: Red Glamour. So please, thanks very much for coming, everyone, and uh, thanks once again, Rebecca. The interestingly titled Aboriginal English.